Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for being such a good and gracious God. And Lord, as we come here this morning to worship together, we thank You for coming into our presence and allowing us, Lord, to express our love and our devotion, our gratitude, our praise, our supplications, um, our hearts to You. I pray now that as we continue worshiping You in the understanding of Your Word, that, Lord, Your Spirit will work in a mighty way to bring to each of us a truth we need to hear for ourselves today. And I pray that it will be a truth that we can hear together as a church. And Lord, I ask that uh, during this message today, I might grow smaller and you might grow bigger. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about your families, but it's probably true of all of you as well. Families have stories, right? There are things that go on in our family life that is just funny and interesting and amazing, and we love to tell stories. One of the stories that my daughters love to repeat over and over again is the story of the Paschal Lamb. It was Easter, and every Easter, my mom made a lamb cake. And she would make it out of some, I don't know if it was yellow mix, it it tasted like pound cake. And then she would put this wonderful vanilla icing over it. And then, to make it look like a lamb, she would sprinkle coconut on it, and put a couple of eyes in it with raisins, and a little cherry, part of a cherry for nose. And every year, didn't matter how old we were, we always wanted to eat the head. Now the reason we wanted to eat the head was because it had all the icing on it. Extra icing. It was awesome. Well, my mom would make all of us take turns. So, one year, the last year my mom made a lamb cake, and you'll understand why. The family is sitting around the table. I'm in the other room taking a nap because it's Easter and I'm tired. I've been up all day. I've been preaching. I've eaten with the family. They're horsing around in the kitchen. I wake up and I go walk into my mom's kitchen, and there's my mom my brother, my sister, my cousins. And they're, they're just all laughing. And this lamb cake has been cut from the back end. But then my baby brother, who by this time is probably 28, 29 years old, goes six foot two, 275 pounds. He's sitting at the table with this knife, big knife threatening to cut off the whole head. And my mother is pleading with my brother. She always loved him best anyways. That's one of our family stories. She's pleading with him not to desecrate the lamb. I, I walk in and go, 
desecrate a lamb? A lamb cake? Are you kidding me, mom? And then they're egging me on because they want me to be a part of this, especially my sister, because she likes to pretend that she was the good girl and I was the bad boy. But in fact, she initiated a lot of stuff. She was passive aggressive in it. I was just more out front. And I said, I'm having nothing to do with this. My brother takes the knife and he just goes, and the head comes off. And I thought my mother, I thought we're going to have to institutionalize her. She got so upset. And she said, I will never again cook a lamb cake for any of you. And she never did. (laughs) Ever. And of course, we were just rolling around laughing and the kids had seen it and heard it. And they loved telling the story. And I'm probably not as funny as you, you think it is, but it was hilarious. And so one year I decided I would make a lamb cake and return to my mother's tradition. But the girls told me it looked like a rabid dog. <laughs> so that's the end of the lamb cake. We all have family stories, don't we? And, and what happens in family is very formative to us. It shapes us. Um, it's, it's where we intimately learn about life. And it's where we grow. And it doesn't matter whether we're kids or we're parents or we're grandparents. We're still growing. I, uh, I mentioned to Tim just the other day, I said, yeah, you know, the funny thing about kids, because he's got Elijah who's about this big, and he is, he's got a motor. That guy can go. And he, he reminds me of pastor. And uh, I, I said to him, I said, you're going to grow up with your son. Because we all do. We grow up with our kids. There are stuff that we just need to grow up from. And when we're correcting our kids, we go, oh, that's why my mom said that to me. Or that's why dad said that to me. I think I better clean that up if I want them to do it. So you grow up. And then as a grandparent, you grow up too. I mean, my daughter's sitting there talking to me about how I baby my grandson. So I was listening to her and go, you know, you're right. Absolutely right. I need to be firmer with him. But I also said, as a grandparent, I get to spoil him. Well, family researchers tell us that family is foundational to all human communities. It is the most foundational social unit that exists throughout the world. We shouldn't be surprised, right? When God created all things, the first thing that he created beyond all these things was family. He didn't create the church. He didn't create tribes and nations. He didn't create institutions. He created the family. And the family is where we are socialized, where learning begins, where we learn how to thrive and how to survive. Well, if this is true in the secular world, it would also be true of our spiritual family, the church. The church is a place where we grow and we mature and we learn about the spiritual life that God intended for us. It's a place where we can interact in a very personal way and begin to 
mature in, over these things and deal with them. And of course, the intimacy of community means that we're going to bump into each other. We're going to anger each other sometimes. So we need, just like every family, forgiveness and grace. We need truth. We need all the same things that a family needs. Love, support. It's what the spiritual family of the church provides. But what I do want to say is that while the church helps us in this shared life together to really grow into who God has intended us to be, I don't want any of you, especially if you have kids, to assume that the church can take your place. The church cannot take the place of the nuclear family. Because every day, you eat together. You work together. You spend time together. That's formative time. And they see your values and they see how you're living it out. And the truth is, <coughs> while the church can help, the church can't take your place. So I don't want to, to say that. I don't want you to think of that. Now, when church is done right, it is a very powerful influence in people's lives. It shapes and it forms us spiritually. And it is also a witness to the world. And we're going to look at some of that today in our text. Here's the big idea. The shared love of God in Christian community is not only spiritually formative for us, but it also serves to witness to the watching world. Let me repeat that. The shared love of God in Christian community is not only spiritually formative for us, but it also serves to witness to the watching world. Now I want to say if you're a member of the church today, I hope and pray that this message will remind you of the essence and the importance of life together. If you're a visitor with us, and perhaps you don't really fully understand the church, I'm not sure we all do anyways, I hope that you will see in this what we are striving to be and how we are striving to live together, as well as the need and importance to be spiritually connected with others. What I invite you to do now is to open up 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And maybe your Bible, it may be your electronics. I'm also going to put it up here on the screen because it's not too much of a passage. But let's read it together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now let me give you a little outline of how we're going to go through this text. The first thing that we're going to look at 
in, these, in the message today is the exhortation to love each other. Then how God's love defines us. After that, how we are to emulate God's love with each other. And finally, that loving each other is one way that we witness to the world. And then lastly will be just a practical application, some things that you can do to um, grow in this shared life together. I want to start on the first point from our text, which is to love each other. The text says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. The church, like family, has a very special bond that we share with each other. There is a common denominator that makes us family, just as common ancestors may make us family in a, a physical sense. So, in a spiritual sense, the resurrected Savior and Lord Jesus makes us family with each other. Earlier, in John's letter, in chapter 3, he says this, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. His children. And that we are. God's love through Jesus connects us to one another. It makes us children of the Heavenly Father. If I were to further this family metaphor a little, little more, and the scriptures certainly use family as a metaphor for the church. Because we have a spiritual father, our spiritual DNA ought to resemble him, don't you think? And that's the point. Let us love one another for love is from God. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples on the last earthly night of his life. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This is the same John who wrote this letter. We are to love each other just as Jesus loves us. We are not the source of our love for one another. God is the source of that love. The love that Jesus embodied and that he modeled, that has saved us, is precisely that love that we are to share with each other. That makes sense to everybody? That's what we're sharing in terms of love. It's God's love. That's this common um, expression between us that should be going on all the time. Well then, John says that God's love is to define us. And we read it this. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, why does he say those who are born of God know God and those who do not love are not born of God? Well, the answer is found at the beginning of chapter 4. 
we read in the very first verse, and I'll read it to you in the NLT because it's, it's pretty clear. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. John was not only instructing his readers about the genuine life together that we do by loving one another, John was also helping them to identify and address false teachers so they would not be fooled. Scholars say that the theology of the false teachers at that time did not hold that Jesus was the expression of God's love nor that a sacrificial act upon the cross was necessary. Their failure to fully embrace Jesus and the necessity and importance of God's love through him means that their claim to know God and to be able to teach the people was false. And they should not be trusted. So this was, for those who were reading this, a way to determine whether these teachers were true or they were false. The false teachers made pedigree and religious laws and customs or possessing secret knowledge about God the focus of their faith. John says, unless the love comes through Jesus, it's not of God. False teachers do not No, God. They claim to, but they do not. And to add emphasis to this, he makes one more statement. He says, God is love. Now what he doesn't say is love is God. He says, God is love. God is creator. All things flow out of God. Love is not equal to God. And this is important in today's world, if you think about it. There are lots of people who want to synchronize all the faiths, especially the Christian faith. And they want it to uh, combine with other things, and so they want to talk about Jesus as love, and, and they want to say love's the most important thing, and we don't have to use the name, and we don't have to do this, and we don't have to do that. And they want to diminish what Jesus has done because they don't understand. It's important that you understand. Jesus is the only Son of God. He is the only expression of God's love sufficient to take upon Himself the wrath of God and to set us free in forgiveness. No other has done that. And how do we know that Jesus is the one who did that? We know because he rose from the grave. I want to say to you that love will ultimately reflect the place from which it flows. Consider this from a worldly perspective, okay? My daughters had two grandmas, my mom and Marsha's mom. My mom was a warm fuzzy. 
definitely a warm fuzzy. Marsha's mom was a prickly. Now, I got to tell you, they were both wonderful women and wonderful moms and wonderful grandmas. But my mom, she would hug and she would laugh and she would kiss. And she just was this warm, friendly person. But that's who my mom was. And that's how her love then got expressed. And Marcia's mom was more rigid and more structured. And she was more disciplined about things. And she required that of others. And the girls didn't feel that same sense of connection. Their love, though genuine, both real and not one better than the other, flows out of who they are. And it's the same thing. If we think we can love each other with who we are, it will never measure up. We don't have the ability to to provide extravagant grace. Think about it. Those of you who are parents, your kids get out of line. How extravagant is your grace unless you're thinking about what does God want me to do in this? Oh, God wants me to extend extravagant grace to my, my daughter or my son, right? Instead, we just react. That's our love. But God's love is different. God's love is like Jesus. And we see that, and we're going to see that more in the next movement and verse from this text. If love flows out of your brokenness, then it will reflect that. But if love flows out of your relationship with Jesus and his love for you, then it will reflect that as well. Here's the third point, that we are to emulate God's love. We read in verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sin. What does God's love look like? It doesn't look like a love for ice cream or fast cars or good music or cell phones or your high school chums or even the Chicago Cubs. Though I admire your devotion to them. I know it is second to the Lord. You know, when I came, and we have those pictures up in the hallway, Robert had his picture with a cub hat on. I thought it was awesome. I wanted to take a picture with a Sox hand and put him on one end and me on the other. I thought that would have been great. Just messing with you, Robert. In the text, we are told that God's love looks like the Son of God whose selfless act of life has given us life. Just consider this act of selflessness. 
We read in Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Selflessness. God's love puts others before self. The text also says that it looks sacrificial. That it has someone else's highest good above all else, the concern. This is why Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. Consider the atoning sacrifice that he made that has reconciled us to God. In Romans it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God's love is not described to us as a feeling. It is not described to us as a thought. It is not described to us as a good intention. It is described to us as action. It is selfless and it is sacrificial and it puts the good of others above self. In our natural state as sinful human beings, we could never be the source of selfless, sacrificial action. We would fail, and we do fail, if we rest in ourselves. But the true source is available to us. The true source is Jesus. And he wants to claim our life, give us life, and fill us with His Spirit and empower us so that we can live like He lived and we can love like He loved. God's love flows first to us from our acceptance of Jesus. And then God's love empowers us through the Holy Spirit so that we may act more like Jesus and flow out of us to others. That we might be selfless and sacrificial so that others will know God's love. And this knowing of God's love by others is evident in the last two verses. Let's move to that point. Loving each other is how God is revealed in the world. This is what we read. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 11 is just a repeat of the beginning of this text. It is an admonition that is repeated for emphasis. But then John introduces a new idea. He introduces the invisibility of God. No one has ever seen God. Scholars tell us that there's probably a couple of reasons for this. First, it may have been a point 
of dispute with the false teachers. They may have been claiming that they have visions of God and they see God along with knowing God. And John is saying, "Uh uh-uh. God's invisible. And the Scriptures tell us that. We're not going to see Him. Not like that. But second, scholars tell us that it was likely to encourage the church. Encourage the church in terms of looking outward and giving ourselves away. What do I mean by that? Well, it says that the love that we have with each other makes us complete and whole and mature, right? But in that complete wholeness and maturity, there is also an outward expression. How is the world going to see the invisible God? If God's invisible, how is anybody going to see Him? How is anybody going to know Him? Well, the answer is, according to John, that He'll know Him through the love that we have for one another. People will see God in that. I believe that God wants us not to just be inward focused. The problem when we talk about life together is we focus on each other. We focus on our life together, but we don't focus on the world and coming from that love to be able to express it to others, to give and to witness to them, to live in abandonment of self, to to meet people at the well and reach out to them, right? and begin having spiritual conversations, and to share with them, well, there are many things we can share with them. The greatest thing we can share with them is the gospel, is it not? The hope of knowing God. Because they can know Him. In the gospel of John, John says in his very first chapter this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. That's Jesus. That's who John is talking about. Now, John in this letter follows that same formula. Look at what we read. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Is John saying here, and perhaps he is, and there are scholars who would say he is, that it is through our love for one another, the world will see God. The invisible God will become known to them. They will see him in the love we have and in the life we live together. There are many things that draw people. But compassion, love, truth, um, the desire to grow and be teachable, these are all qualities that matter. And when you in a family or a community where these things are important and you're doing these things and you're living out your faith in these ways and you're maturing, It's quite 
um, appealing to people. Especially when we balance truth with grace, right? Because the world doesn't do that. The world either hammers you or the world um, enables your sin. But it really doesn't deal with it. And yet God has a way of dealing with it, of balancing those things in, in their proper order. I'll never forget when I had a punk rocker come to church. In this former church of mine, and this guy come in, he had long hair. I mean, just so you know, it's 19, maybe 1985, 88. So he's way ahead of his time. He's got an earring hanging out. He's got tattoos, right? And he's sitting there listening to the sermon. And, you know, what bothered me was nobody would really go and talk to the guy because he looked so different from the people of the culture. And it concerned me. And one of the people up the food chain in the church said, you know, I don't like the young man. I said, do you even know him? Well, you know, we can't have people like that in the church. I said, you know, I hope we'll have drunks in the church and people who are stumbling and people who are challenged and not sure they love God and people who are looking for God. I hope anybody who's looking for God will come and be a part of our church. Anybody who admits that they have a need for God will come and check it out because that's what the church is supposed to be about. And when people come and they experience that love, it has an impact on them. Here's the thing that I was taken by our church, and I've said it before. I was taken by the amount of extravagant grace that just church not only says as a core value, but absolutely lives out and believes. And not just the leaders, but I mean all the way through the congregation. That grace that I've seen over and over again with people. I know it has a deep impact. And I'll tell you what, I have people who come to the church, been here maybe one or two times, they go away, they come back, and they pull me aside and say, Pastor, can I talk to you for a second? Well, sure. You have a warm church family. It's really appealing, and I want you to know that. See, because we're all tired. We've all been beat up. We all need a little love. We all need a little care. We all need a little concern. We all need some extravagant grace. We all need some truth. And I was happy when I heard that. Because it said to me, that's a great witness of our church. Not everybody is going to come here and be a part of the church. But it's important that when they see us interacting together, they see the love that we have for one another. Because it will speak to them about God and they can see God in that. And when they see how we act toward the world out of that love, that also speaks to them. Project Share is coming up this fall where we raise funds to feed the under-resourced throughout the Chicagoland area. It speaks volumes to people. They know about it. We've been doing it for years. 
they understand that it's coming out of our love. The love that God has given to us. These kinds of things matter. And they make a difference. Well, let me uh, move on to application and bring this to a close. What is it, how is it, that you can respond to this message in terms of the shared life together? Well, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to take the shared life together seriously. Be intentional about loving one another. Don't take this relationship we have for granted. Don't just simply come and say, well, I just need to feel better. Because part of this church family is about maturing and it's about growing and it's about learning and it's about reaching. And don't say, you know, I don't need any more change in my life. Well, part of this congregation is about helping you manage change so that you can deal with change because that's the nature of life and we're going to deal with it. Take seriously this loving each other. Listen to one another. Listen, hear one another. Challenge one another where we need to be challenged, right? Encourage and support one another where we need to be encouraged and supported. And love. Love generously and love deeply. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Next week, we start our annual plunge. The plunge is really an opportunity we have as a church to be on one page together. And during these six weeks, we study a topic together during worship. And then during the week, we meet in small groups, or what we call life groups, to um, study more about it in the scriptures, to share with each other and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to discuss it so that we can grow more deeply in it. It's a call to plunge because not everybody's in a life group, but much of our church is. And what we hope is that if you're not in a life group, you will try it out. You will take the plunge. Sometimes people are afraid of of being with other folk or they're not sure they're going to be liked or they just don't know. But this is an opportunity to find out about this shared life together. You don't have to be a member of our church. Sign up for the marks of a disciple. That's coming up. Don't tip your toe in the water. Jump in. It's only six weeks. Then at that point, if you don't want to be in a life group, that's okay. It's time to get out. You may find that you like life group, but you need a different group. Maybe it doesn't meet your schedule and we have other groups. We're going to work with you to, to help you um, connect with each other so you can do life together and really love on each other and um, really live this shared life out so that God's love can be perfected in us as a church. I would encourage you to sign up you can do so as you leave uh, by the well. You can call during the week. But we would love to have everybody signed up for the plunge. We're going to be focused on discipleship and the marks of a disciple. 
and it promises to be an incredible study. We have um, our studies all together for our life group leaders. They'll get that uh, finished product um, before we start next week. So I hope that you'll take advantage of that opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your love and your grace. And we, um, we want you to know what a privilege it is that we have to be called into this family here in this place to love one another. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be good stewards of your love. You will help us to live out your love with each other in powerful ways. And that we'll be so changed by that love, Lord, that it will cause us to relate to others outside of the world in just the same way. And I pray that our witness would be a witness to the world, that you would use it, Lord, to reach others. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. or really two questions and a comment. Um, One way that Christian love distinguishes itself is the loving of our enemies. How should families protect themselves but also love our enemies? Well, when we talk about loving our enemies, that can mean a lot of different things, but I think the first thing that we need to do is to pray for them. Maybe even before that, we need to pray for ourselves. One of the things I do is I continue to pray about myself and continue to pray about why I don't like this person, why I feel they're an enemy, what it is that my problem is, and ask God to keep revealing that to me and to um, treat these people with respect, and uh, but not trusting them. The scriptures don't say that we have to trust them, okay? But we are to love them. So we can pray for them. We can learn to respect them. Um, we can ask questions if, if we're, we have to be in their presence all the time. A lot of times, what you'll find is your enemy becomes somebody who really can be your friend, especially when misunderstandings are worked through and God can help with that. So I would just say, pray for yourself first and foremost. Get an understanding of where you're coming from. Pray for that person. And then remember to treat them like Jesus would. And that's not easy. I know. Um, Secondly, love the message and love our family. Uh, Need to remember uh, it is live in action in God's word, not just deeds. So I I would agree. uh, We have to live in action and We have to focus on God's word, but we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit too. And if it's just deeds, we're missing the mark. So I appreciate that comment. And it's easy for things to become that, especially when we're into action. Um, Lastly, I understand the difference between love as a feeling and love as an act. But when we love others as God loved us, we will undoubtedly face rejection like we heard last week. How can we discern whether that rejection is truly directed towards God or if perhaps there is something we should be doing differently? I believe Pastor said last week, um, if I remember right, 
You know, go ahead and ask questions. Come to understanding. Seek to understand what's going on. More often than not, it's not us. But when we seek to understand, when we care enough to, to reach into that person and to let them express who they are, oftentimes you find that that rejection is coming from somewhere else. And if it's coming because of you, and that's what you find as you ask those questions, then ask the person to forgive you if there's a reason to be forgiven. And if there isn't, then let God sort it all out. He can do that. He is more than able. Thank you for those great questions. I, I think they're very pertinent, and um, certainly they are questions that challenge me as well. Please rise now for the benediction. I remind us as we leave this place, we're going out into the world. God is out there working in many different places. He's working on people who don't even know that he loves them and he wants to connect with them. And he is making divine appointments even now for them. And we'll be a part of some of that. So when you leave, remember that you have an opportunity to connect with people at the well. God is making divine appointments with you with others if you will just reach out to them, listen to them, love them, and uh, be Jesus to them. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace, both now and unto life eternal. Amen.